everyone and welcome to Booked Solid. We are your host, I'm India. And I'm Soraya. And today we're going to be covering Thick by Tressie McMillan Cottom. And before we get into today's episode, we just want to drop a quick announcement. This will be our last episode of season two. We're going to go on another quick hiatus, but don't worry, we will be back soon with season three. More details about it can be found on our Instagram, um, which is in the link below uh, at Book Solid Podcast. Spoiler alert. Hey guys, just as a heads up, we will be revealing spoilers in this episode. If you haven't yet read the book or seen the show or film, this is a courteous reminder to proceed with caution. So, just jumping right in, um, I know before we started recording, we have a lot of thoughts on this book, um, but I guess I just want to start by asking you your initial thoughts. Yeah, this was... So first, I was really excited to get into some nonfiction. I th- not I think. I know this is our first nonfiction read that we've ever done on the show. Um, so it was really nice to kind of switch up the genre. And I, th- I know I mentioned this before we started recording, but this book, it was... There was a lot of, like, aha moments for me. Like, it was just, like, she put into words a lot of things that I feel, but maybe, you know, couldn't articulate as eloquently as she can. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was hard to read at parts because, you know, reflecting on the black female experience specifically, like, she just hit home with mm-hmm. a lot of the things and there's a lot of pain and there's a lot I feel that's not always um, discussed. And so just to see her write about it so clearly and to see that things I've gone through reflected in her writing, like, it was very um, difficult, but in a, in a good way. Yeah, I definitely want to echo that. Like, it was validating. Mm-hmm. Um, That's the word I... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, she's just brilliant. Like, I was so... Part of me is just reading it, trying to understand, and, like, um, just take what I can from it. And part of me was just in awe and, like, reverence of her writing because, like... And as we're going through these essays, I felt like um, some of the moments she was talking or writing in more of, like, a prose style... And there's like lots of imagery she's pulling from like her childhood and previous experiences. And I felt like I was there and I felt like I saw myself in her situations when she's in college and these like, um, she's talking about like a organization that she joined in one essay. And yeah, I just felt like so present and so- Seen, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. just definitely very seen. And then other times I felt like I was being um, like intellectually stimulated or mm-hmm. like, you know, I felt like my brain is working <laughs> overtime, maybe trying to like um, understand, but I still felt like, I still feel like I was able to understand the gist of what she was saying on some of those essays and um, yeah, I felt like it was intellectually challenging. I guess that's what I'm trying yeah, to say. Definitely intellectually <laughs> stimulating <laughs> at parts. Like this was one of the first books that, yeah, I think it's actually the first book that I own that wasn't for school that I, I annotated. And I was struggling with the idea of it while I was reading. So I was like, I don't know. I never write in my books. And then finally, like, as I was sitting here before we started recording, I just started going ham <laughs> because I was like, you know what? There's just, I had so many thoughts while I was reading it. That I was like, I have to kind of get them out somewhere. Yes. And 
I know we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but one thing I really love about this book is how she covers s literally so much ground. Like, I feel like this book, there's so many talking points. There could literally be several episodes, like, from the essays in this book. Um, and it's only like 250 pages or yes! something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes, like it was just really fascinating um, just how much ground she was able to cover in just like really quickly, succinctly tied up chapters. And like she's tackling race and gender and class and politics and um, social media and like pop culture and like just sociology like all these things that are very pertinent and relevant particularly to the black woman's experience and i just felt so yeah represented seen heard um but also still challenged like she was bringing up things i hadn't even thought about and and in a way she, i feel like she was uncovering answers to questions i had that i didn't even realize i was looking for i'm just like this is some groundbreaking writing yes truly <laughs> and I, I think that when we're talking about books specifically, you know, we see a lot of books, a lot of posts now about what to read and engage in to be anti-racist. Mm. And I honestly really haven't seen this book in that mix. I feel like I've seen the same kind of titles and I genuinely feel like everybody needs to read this book um, and that you'll be better for it because it just, it presents another perspective that I really and truly feel like we don't get enough of in the literary space. And for her to be to talk about it with such authority, because this is her lived experience, mm -hmm. and to write about it in such a way that I think it would be really eye-opening for a lot of people to read this book. Yeah, I agree. I honestly feel like this is the type of book that could be a sign. Maybe, I don't know, with high school texts, I know they're very particular, but definitely college campuses, I can see for sure. um, class conversations being held. And I want to say, even though, you know, I as, a, I as a black woman was able to really connect with the material because it's written from a black woman and her perspective, I think that other folks should also definitely read and can still gain a lot and just, yeah, understanding and how to interact with the black women you deal with in your life. Um, this book is going to... I think it'll help a lot with that. And to that point, you know, I hate when people try to say like well, that they feel like they can't read something because it's not meant for them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, we know this is like an undisputable fact. This is not even a matter of opinion that in the literary space, fiction or not, it is dominated heavily by white voices. Mm -hmm. Yet that doesn't stop us from reading Hunger Games, Twilight, et cetera, et cetera. So you can't really use the excuse of this is not written for me. Everything is written for everyone. Mm -hmm. And the only way to broaden your worldview is to read from different perspectives. I don't want to hear anybody using that. Like, I don't know if this is meant. It is meant for you. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And I think it, it is a disservice. It's a disservice to black people, to black creatives to make this like a niche thing. And mm -hmm. it's just for them. And like, actually challenge yourself, open up your mind. And yeah, like, even if you are black, there's stuff, like I said, as a black person where I was like, wow, I didn't even realize that was the tea, but it is the tea. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, I was very, very impressed by this book, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, I heavily, I heavily agree. And so for those of you who don't know, if you haven't read the book, it's compiled of six essays. It's six, right? Yeah. Yeah, six essays um, that uh, Tressie has written. And what's cool about this book is, so there are essays from 
that she didn't write specifically for this book. They're essays that she's published. But in this book, she kind of re-edits them and tells them a little bit differently. And I really like that she actually kind of made that self-reflective comment of, she's like, if I was able to just take these essays as I originally published them and throw them in this book, then I would not be the type of writer I want to be. I'm constantly evolving and changing. And so as I was putting together this this collection, I did have to rework my, my, um, my work because my opinions have changed. I now know new information. So I thought that that was really interesting that it's like a fresh take on her own opinion and to mm -hmm. see kind of how she's changed and how she's grown. Um, I thought that was really cool. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. That is definitely neat. So I guess just jumping right in um, with this episode, too, it being our first nonfiction and us tackling like kind of short story essays um, in terms of like structuring it, it will be a little bit different than our fiction episodes for those of you who are familiar with that format. Um, but I guess we can just go like kind of point by point. Yeah, that's that good bring to up. Um, so one thing I wanted to start with early on in the book, she um, talks about this idea of black women making themselves smaller. And so I just wanted to read a line. It's on page seven. Why is that literally the first thing in my notes <laughs> is page seven annotation? <laughs> We're in yes, sync. We're yes. in sync always. <laughs> Let's see. Just looking through my book here. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she says, um, I was, like many young women, expected to be small so that boys could expand and white girls could shine. When I would not or could not shrink, people made sure that I knew I had erred. Mm. And I just felt, again, like so validated, so seen, because I feel like, yeah, I wish this is something I had access to. And I know it came out <laughs> like recently, but like when I was younger, I wish I like was thinking like this because a lot of times especially in the public education system like I did feel like I was erring or I was wrong and I did feel like definitely when I was like more insecure and low self-esteem like middle school like middle school is middle school <laughs> like everyone is insecure everyone's dealing with stuff um as we've talked about a lot in our past episodes however I felt like being a black woman um a young black woman I just, yeah, I, I wanted to shrink myself down. I was always worried about my hair. Um, and even as a, I remember um, in college, I was at like a party one time and we were like in a, it was a pretty diverse group of friends. And I'm like, you guys can't see obviously, but like I'm pretty tall in real life. And out of the friend group, I think I was like the tallest. And we were watching, like there's like this band there performing and we were towards the front and my hair is up and I was just like, I feel uncomfortable. Like I feel like I'm blocking, um, this, you know, people behind me. And my friend, she happened to also be black and she's just like, you don't have to make yourself smaller. And like, she just said it quickly in this loud, sweaty building. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, like I still am dealing with this as an adult because she's absolutely right. That's what I was trying to do. That's how I felt. And it's like, it's not my fault that my hair is big or that I'm tall. Like, why do I feel like I have to shrink myself? To and fit into these spaces. Yeah, like that's mm -hmm. literally not fair. And yes. so, yeah, just that, that was very fascinating to me. Yeah, and going even um in that passage too, what I had underlined was, um, the point of basically too like you're saying just like as a black woman of feeling like you're never enough 
or correct like no matter what you are or what you're doing Mm -hmm. if you're loud people are calling you ghetto if you are trying to if you like the finer things in life you're Mm -hmm. bougie or you're trying to be white or whatever like you can never get just the right balance of everything everyone wants you to be and there's that part where she says thick where i should have been thin more when i should have been less a high school teacher nicknamed me miss personality and it did not feel like a superlative Mm. and i actually remember like when i was in kindergarten my mom had a parent teacher conference and the teacher told her like oh you know so i a pleasure and i love having her in my class and da 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 but have you ever noticed that she's kind of loud and like i don't know for some reason like reading that sentence made me think of that and it was like it's like was i loud because i was loud and i was a kid or are you trying to insinuate something further and Mm -hmm. you know maybe i'm reading too much into it but also maybe not Mm-hmm. And then there was, she also said, um, one of my first forays into publishing anything, an editor told me that I was too readable to be academic, too deep to be popular, too country black to be literary, and too naive to show the rigor of thinking and the complexity of my prose. And it's again, just never enough, mm-hmm. but always too much. Mm-hmm. And we just, I feel like it's, we can't win. Yeah. And you know, I'm glad I also, I underlined that part as well. And it's just, it's really strange to me that you know, like you were saying, these types of words are always attributed specifically to black women, but they're always negative. I just feel like like other non-black women are maybe given more grace when it comes to identifying them. Oh, she's really driven or oh, she's type A. But when it comes to black women, like you're saying, oh, she's bougie. Oh, she doesn't want to associate with, you know, other black people. It's just like, it's always some weird, and I know a lot of it's internalized misogyny and like, people coming to terms with colonialism and assimilation after all these decades and I understand that but it's just like it's still a disservice to black women and it's still it sets us back ultimately because we have to have this like kind of wake up moment where we realize what's going on where we realize are we being over policed and and that and I'm glad you brought that up too I think it's frankly it's disturbing and I know parent teacher conferences are necessary because like teachers got to check in with their kids but I think sometimes because I I like they were calling me I think in the third grade my teacher told my parents my nickname was giggle box because <laughs> I was always laughing but it's just like we're kids of course we're going to be talking of course we're going to be laughing um of course yeah this is where you start learning like disciplinary stuff and how to like navigate being indoors versus outdoors (laughs) indoor voice voice. um but that is kind of disturbing and then you're absolutely right to question that like is this what you're saying to all the kids who are quote-unquote talkative or are you particularly you know honing in on this because this kid is black yeah i'm so glad i really i want to talk about that a lot because that's something that really bothers me and um you said something when you first started speaking that there's words that people use that are they sound like they're supposed to be a compliment but it's not like Mm -hmm. and and that goes into microaggressions Mm -hmm. of i had this teacher in college who kept telling me over and over and over and over how articulate she thought i was and i'm like that's not a compliment (laughs) right i need you to stop telling me that please and thank you and also to your point like as black women we are not afforded the freedom and the luxury that non-black women are to be whoever you want Mm. to be to be like we everything that we do it feels like it's kind of how people are trying to use it to reinforce their own stereotype Mm. or their own preconceived notion Mm -hmm. people get the freedom to be loud or exuberant or quiet or this or that without being labeled and shoved into a box of like oh she's loud because she's black or she's like she's this because she's that and Mm -hmm. like this is something that i just thought of while you were saying it and i'm just gonna be kind of blunt but I was driving one day and there were this group of girls in like a convertible and they were white girls singing, scream singing, Bodak Yellow by Cardi B. 
love that for them having the time mm-hmm. their lives i like to get with my friends and be silly and do stuff like that too however we cannot ignore the fact that if that had been a group of black girls driving with the top down scream singing bodak yellow by cardi b it would probably be received differently from people than it was with this group of white girls and i remember driving past them and thinking i can't do that mm-hmm. because i'm not going to get the same kind of treatment that they are for doing that Mm. i might get harassed somebody might say something at the very least someone's gonna just like use it to confirm some stereotype that they have about black women and that so that's what i'm talking about is that we don't get the freedom to be whoever we want to be and so seeing them do that like honestly made me a little bit sad because like i feel like i don't have the privilege to be able to do something as simple as sing with my windows down Mm mm-hmm and it's so interesting how that's like a shared universal experience because I, I feel like I've definitely had this conversation throughout my life with other black people and I myself like I'm guilty as charged <laughs> when I'm driving it's almost therapeutic to play my music really loud sometimes like yes. I just I like it and but something that's interesting I remember being a kid and um, like we moved to a predominantly white neighborhood and my parents through them i learned this idea of the moment like we will be on the main (laughs) the main street the moment we pull into that neighborhood swiftly the hand is going to the volume button and you're cutting it down because we can't be that loud black family pulling into this white neighborhood bumping rap we've seen the cops call them black people for less exactly and that was literally i was like i don't know nine maybe no i was younger definitely younger like seven and you know I'm starting to understand like what it's like being black and how we have to be smaller and shrink shrink ourselves down and how we can't really be our full selves and it's just like we that's have to be crazy. accommodating mm-hmm. in every situation too whether it be professional academic social we are constantly having to put on different shoes that are required for each different situation and it's exhausting mm-hmm. I'm constantly policing myself so that I'm received in uh, the right way or so i don't have to face some kind of unnecessary pushback from people Mm -hmm. and the catch is you know this type of self-policing one it never ends and two it still doesn't really protect us you know it it absolutely (laughs) does not it kind of gives us this sense of protection Mm -hmm. but it doesn't Mm -mm. it doesn't it's like um have you seen did you watch the reboot of um the Twilight Zone, the, the one that Jordan Peele did. Oh, you know what? I, I caught, like, two episodes, but I didn't finish it. There's an episode, um, I won't spoil it, but basically of this woman and her son. They're black, and they're stuck in this time loop of this cop shooting her son. Mm. And... It doesn't matter what she does. In one of the situations, she goes up and introduces him and says, like, oh, you know, he's about to start college in the fall. He has ex-GPA. He does this. Like, and I'm not, that's not a spoiler. Like, the the ending and stuff and all that. There's so much more that happens in the episode. Mm -hmm. But it's basically, like, proving that point. It doesn't matter what you do. People Mm -hmm. are going to see what they want to see. They're going to react how they want to react. And so that episode, it was painful to watch. But, like, he really hit that point well, in my opinion, of, like, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. you know how we police ourselves or or what we try to do yeah and it's just interesting because i think deep down well i guess i'll speak for myself like i know deep down i feel like maybe i've always known that but it's not going to stop me from you know to this day if i pull into my parents neighborhood pulling (laughs) cutting that music down it's too deeply ingrained yeah or even if i'm driving and i notice the police is in the next um lane over i'm cutting my music down for sure Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's no way i'm drawing unnecessary attention to myself also my car is a fishbowl 
Um, you can very much tell that I'm a black person. And like, it's just something that's on my mind constantly. And it is exhausting and it's not fair. And it's just like, yeah, it's very interesting how she brought that up. And it's interesting how these thoughts start so young, you know? Yeah, and that's part of, too, the conversation, the larger conversation about privilege. People hear privilege and they're like, well, I'm not rich, so I'm not benefiting from white mm. privilege. But I'm like, the very fact that you can feel comfortable enough to listen to the loud music in your car, that's a privilege. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about. Obviously, it gets much more serious than that. Like, yeah. But at, at the base level, like these are the other things I'm talking about that you don't even realize that it's a privilege for you because you've never had to think about the potential consequences of doing something like that. Mm -hmm. Stuff as small as going into a store and not buying anything and oh, say I was in there for a while and like, let me get a pack of gum because... <laughs> Exactly. And I'm the person, like, I look at reviews for everything, okay? Mm -hmm. So when I'm shopping, especially when I'm trying something new, like, I'm trying to look on my phone and look at reviews, but I'm always like, do I look suspicious? Do I look like I'm casing the place? Do I look like they think I'm going to slip something in my pocket? Like, mm -hmm. when I'm, like, really just looking on my phone for reviews because I can't decide between which fabric softener I want to buy. Yes. Same. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it is. It's definitely a type of privilege to not have to think like that. And no one's saying, like... Yeah, people definitely can become sensitive. And we all have certain privileges depending on, you know, how all the different factors of our identities. Um, well, maybe not we all, but a lot of people do. Um, but it's not necessarily like this isn't an attack. It's just saying once you're aware of your privileges, you can start to work on how to be more inclusive and how to help, you know, other folks who aren't as privileged like because yeah i feel like that word especially now is very charged and mm -hmm. when people hear privilege like no 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 i worked myself from the i pulled the bootstraps up and i and it's like we're no not one contesting you that <laughs> yeah yeah and i get it you know I, I understand like to an extent being defensive um but it's not an attack it's just a statement it's a fact <laughs> precisely precisely um, I also wanted to talk about, so we move into, oh no, this is still part of the thick essay, the very first one, where she was talking about how um, black women have kind of been pigeonholed into the personal essay category mm. um, when it comes to speaking out or like how they're taken seriously in the media and like what they're giving, given license to talk about and where mm -hmm. people like will give them any kind of credibility. And so she was talking about how um, the personal e essay had become the way that black women writers claim legitimacy in a public discourse that defines itself in part by how well it excludes black women. Mm. And I just thought that was a really interesting passage because, uh, oh, and she said also in modern society, who is allowed to speak with authority is a political act. And, and so it's just, yeah, it's very interesting that she goes on to reflect about how like this seems to be the one space where we are given any kind of opportunity to speak, but then almost even so, people still don't want to believe it. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like even, you know, me saying what I said about the convertible and the music, like, so someone might hear that and be like, well, you're overreacting. Nobody would care if you listened to your music with the radio down. And I'm like, they absolutely would. And I can tell you that because I've lived this experience mm -hmm. and you have not. Yeah, it's almost like the personal essays aren't taken with as much, like, I don't know. They're not held as such high regard or maybe for whatever reason. Well, we know the reason, but like <laughs> <laughs> they're just not taken as seriously. And it's just like, oh, like put the black women over here with the category that we don't really respect, I guess, mm. which is like 
weird because it's definitely like these are lived experiences these are like you know you're pulling from your experiences and then you're extrapolating and gathering meaning often incorporating like other resources it's an essay yeah (laughs) you know and yeah i thought that part was interesting too like it's it's strange how black women are invalidated in that literary space at every turn yes which is like that's the thing that blows my mind is i there are certain experiences that i can't speak on because that is not my lived experience Mm -hmm. and i would never try to tell somebody that's not right or i'm sure that's not how it is or it's not that bad or anything of the like because i haven't lived it i Mm -hmm. wouldn't know but it, it seems to me like especially in the conversation surrounding well, feminism for sure and racism as well people who are not a part of the population really like to try to put their opinion on it mm-hmm. of what that lived experience must be like but then it, I, I, again it just comes back to how would you know mm-hmm. like why can't we have the license or the credibility to speak on something this personal mm-hmm. and to that point um i did want to touch on this point that she brings up it's, i'm just gonna look through the book Okay, so she's kind of talking about this idea of us being the most developed we've ever been in the world to date. And she says, I'm living in the most opportune time in black history in the United States. And that means still that I will die younger, live poorer, risk more exposure to police violence and be punished by social policy for being a black woman in ways that aren't true for almost any other group in this nation. (sighs) And then she also says that is the best it has ever been to be black in America. And it is still that statistically bad at the macro level. I'm so glad you brought that up. That was something else I wanted us to talk about. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) And yeah, like, again, this isn't an opinion. And I don't know, I could say that this entire episode with everything. But it's just like, that's definitely very sobering just knowledge to really think about and sit with um and that's not to like of course discourage black women for wanting to accomplish what they want to accomplish but it's just like we have to acknowledge that and we have to think about that collectively as a society and yeah i just feel like um it's something that like we need to acknowledge head on again like i feel like this should be taught in schools uh, definitely at the college level and well like to what you're saying is like it's not opinion because there are statistics to back this up. There's like actual factual statistical evidence to prove these points and that there are higher rates of mortality, specifically like with black mothers and that our access to certain resources or even when you can't access those resources, whether or not you're taken seriously. Like then in um, another one of Tressie's essays, she talks about how she found the best possible like OBGYN in her area um because she she wanted it's it's a, it's almost that like sense of protection and safety we were talking mm-hmm. about of like shrinking yourself or making yourself fit in a space and so she thought like she thought if i could find a place that is the best of the best then maybe i could protect myself from a healthcare system that that statistically proven has been proven to show that doesn't care about women like me mm-hmm. and she did and then still ended up going through an absolutely horrific experience where she ended up losing her baby because none of these medical professionals were taking her seriously mm-hmm. And so, again, we see that through statistics. We know that black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications and three to four times more likely to suffer from severe disability. And so it's like she tried to put up that armor, that shield, to protect herself, and it still didn't work. 
And I just thought that that whole passage, it was, first of all, incredibly difficult to read because in the very beginning of the book, she talks about how she has a child. And so I, I assumed that this was the child that she had birthed and who is healthy and alive. I didn't realize that she ends up losing this baby. And then her child she has now is from a later pregnancy. And that's something to me that has always been terrifying mm -hmm. as a black woman of like not being taken seriously and i have numerous examples indy and i were talking about this before we started recording that you know i'm not going to get into on the show of not being taken seriously in a healthcare setting i've had doctors laugh at me in my face when i've expressed concerns i've had them try to write it off as oh you know it's just blank when i know that it's not because i know my body and I know what things normally feel like and so it's it's very terrifying that is something that I think about often and um it, it's it's sickening yeah yeah when I read that part like literally just gut-wrenching the way that I felt and to know that this is the lived experience of so many black women in this country it's disgusting and it's inexcusable and she also talks about this idea of um a presumed incompetence she calls it mm. structural incompetence and it's true like I definitely in my own life have experienced like I feel like when I'm dealing with medical professionals that they think I'm stupid or lying or just something incorrect about my own, how I'm feeling, and that then affects their diagnosis, which in many cases aren't even really diagnosed. I still don't know what's going on or it's a misdiagnosis and then I'm being treated for something that's not really the problem. It's just... Like um, you're not worthy of getting their full level of attention because they don't even think you know why you're here or something like that. Or like exactly. they don't think that you really know what you're talking about. And exactly. Yeah, it's like it's like just constantly having to prove yourself. Exactly. And and off of what? To look at me, you see the color of my skin, texture of my hair, whatever, what have you, and now this is how I'm being treated, and now it's affecting my health. My health is my livelihood, right? And so when we're reading this part, I'm just like, and she's talking in detail about, you know, um, I won't get into detail on the podcast because just talking about it is just like, yeah, it's making me really sad, but it's just like... The fact that, you know, as she's recounting her experience and losing her baby, um, there were many instances along the way in which had a professional had taken her seriously, we don't know, you know, but like, it's it seems like maybe there could have been a different outcome. Like, she was in, she was bleeding heavily. She did everything right. She did everything right. She went, as soon as she felt the bleeding and the cramps, she told them over and over what was wrong with her. She went back in when it felt like it wasn't what they said it was. And then they made it seem like it was her mm -hmm. fault that she lost the baby. Like, if you, any of you haven't read the book, there's a point where they're wheeling her out of the delivery room to go hold her now deceased baby. And the nurse tells her, by the way, there was nothing we could do because you didn't tell us you were in labor. She didn't know she was in labor. She told you guys, I'm having pain here and here. This is how long it's been going on. And you told her that it was, um, what did they say it was? Oh. A strained muscle or something. Yeah. Braxton Hicks, I don't know. But they, they didn't, she told them exactly what her symptoms were. They are the doctors. They did not deduce that it meant she was in labor. So mm -hmm. how dare that nurse turn it around on her and tell her, you didn't tell us you were in labor, so there was nothing we could have done. And I think also that type of insensitive, like, she just lost her baby. Have some compassion. Yeah. Like, that whole part was wildly disturbing, too. Just also for the fact that, so something terrible has happened, right? Why are we trying to assign blame and to assign, like, that's not something you tell, like, a grieving mother, grieving parents, one. And two, 
um, have a little like maybe ownership. Like, so whether or not you believe it was quote unquote her fault, I think it's wildly inappropriate to say that. Like, and I feel like the fact that she was a black woman had to play in her saying that so nonchalantly, but it's also just like, yeah, like I, I thought it was just weird that this nurse was trying to place blame on what happened. Like at this point it has happened. Yeah. So at this point you just have to deal with what has happened. Um, she talked about making like burial arrangements for the baby or just, yeah. And I'm just, yeah, I thought that was just so upsetting. And the fact that I know that this is what's happening to black women every day, it's just, it's not right. It's not. And I get like, as a medical professional, I don't know exactly what you can say in certain situations, because if you say sorry in a certain way, I think it opens you up to like personal liability. So someone can sue and be like, well, they said they didn't do a good enough job. Like the doctor admitted it. Yeah. But we were not asking her to say that. She could have said, I'm so sorry that this happened. Period. There's a way to be a compassionate passionate human or like you know just anything other than by the way there was nothing else we could do because something you did Mm -hmm. because i'm sure she's already gonna live with this oh yeah of like maybe i should have gone to a different hospital what if i had come back sooner i should have pushed the issue but you trust these people who are trained to take care of you you know that's not her fault and listen to you that is not her fault yeah and there's no universe that anyone could convince me that that was her fault so something else that I did want to talk about, um, she does a really amazing job at tackling something that has bothered me a lot, especially as I've gotten older. And it's like this way that we blame and attack and critique and criticize as a society the financial decisions of poor and working class people. And so she says at this part, much like we interrogate what a woman was wearing when she was raped, we look for ways to assign personal responsibility for structural injustices to bodies we collectively do not value. If you are poor, why do you spend money on useless status symbols like handbags and belts and clothes and shoes and televisions and cars? One thing I've learned is that one person's illogical belief is another person's survival skill, and nothing is more logical than trying to survive. I loved that segment. I loved that segment. Like, it's so, and it's also so disturbing how, uh, you know, for example, over the summer, um, as many of you may know, with the pandemic going on, there was a period in which the government was assigning an additional $600 weekly to those who were assigned unemployment. And this outraged a lot of people because a lot of people found themselves making more money than they were making when they were working. And it opened up the door for them to live a <laughs> an actual living wage and to make decisions that they may, may not have been able to make previously. And um, I'm not gonna get into all the, <laughs> the nitty gritty of what that means, but I will say something that disturbed me that I saw, like, I think it was on Twitter, um, or just like, yeah, somewhere on social media, people were like, you're gonna use this money to go out and buy crab legs and, you know, like, what does why do people think that just because you are you know poor working class or you know living check to check that you can't have nice things that is so evil and weird to me i hate that and i just yeah i love that she highlights that and it's also just like you know there's a lot of reasons why people do what they do we we can't acknowledge we can't pretend like how you present yourself how you carry yourself doesn't dictate in determine all kinds of things about your life that's literally the difference between having a job and not having a job what you wear to an interview and she talks about that and um yeah i'm just very impassioned about this this topic gets me absolutely irate okay incensed because 
I don't care who you are, what you do, your income, I don't care anything about you. It never, ever gives you the right to pass judgment on what other people are choosing to spend their money on. If someone, if I see them go buy whatever it may be, a new pair of shoes, and then the next week they're telling me like, oh dang, like I'm having money problems. I don't like, I'm not going to be like, well, why'd you buy this pair of shoes? Mm -hmm. I don't know their life. I don't know what they're doing. That's their business. And you are just never in someone's circumstances to know like specifically what's going on and what led them to do that. And it's just also none of your damn business if Mm -hmm. we're being frank. And this reminds me of, I was on Facebook once. (laughs) Back when I would torture myself in that way. But I was on and I saw someone I used to know talking about how They used to work at a grocery store and they were all upset because they saw a woman come through the checkout line with a pack of steaks and she used a food stamp card to buy them. And this person's going off talking about that card is uh, food stamps are meant to be used for the essentials, not for you to be buying a T-bone steak, blah, 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 all this stuff. Who are you to judge this person on what they're spending their money on? It is none of your business and it made me so angry because it's like what you deem yourself above them but because you deem that they got this for free quotes around free then they can't spend it on whatever they want what what do you want them to go buy what would what would please you what would be okay with you for them to use that on and like also what bothers me is my point of you never know so what if they are struggling financially and what if it is that person's child's birthday mm-hmm. and she can't buy her anything but she can make her a nice meal you just don't know and even if that's not the reason she was buying the steaks it's again not your business but it's just like you just don't know and so for you to feel so angered by this that you had to go on facebook and write an entire rant mm-hmm. about what someone's choosing to buy to eat like there's already restrictions on food stamps you can't buy alcohol you can't buy like Certain things like that. It was right. literally just a steak. <laughs> it just, I, I, to this day, this was like seven years ago, I kid you not, but it still bothers me because people really walk around with this sense of, like, superiority. Absolutely. Basically. I feel like people lose their mind when there's even a glimpse or a hint at the playing field being level when it mm. comes to classes. And it's definitely because um, a lot of times, uh, Tressie McMillan caught him critiques capitalism in a very complex way that I wish that I had the the brain power to really get into that. But I will say something that I've noticed too is just like when it comes to the power dynamics, I think a lot of this attack on um, lower classes, quote unquote, buying these lavish things is because they know that it it almost jeopardizes their status. Yep, I was say the system, it won't exist if everybody's on the same playing field. For mm-hmm. for the system itself to, to exist and thrive, there has to be class discrepancies. Even if it's buying steak. Are you kidding? They gotta eat. They gotta <laughs> eat. Maybe they like steak. Like, who <laughs> Who cares? I, yeah, like, I don't understand. What was she supposed to be buying? Porridge? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, would that please you? Would that be okay? Yeah, like, it's so disturbing. And I have to say, um, speaking on my own life here a little bit, like, yeah, as someone who's just dealt with things, um... It's, it's not, and we talked about this actually in the Such a Fun Age episode. Um, I think Amira, she buys herself a nice jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, from last season. It's just like, like, you don't know. You don't know about what people are doing, why they're doing it. Um, and you, like, 
Amira, in that instance, she was going, um, she was, like, in a somewhat unstable job situation. She was, like, beating herself up for it at first, and you just don't know, and it's not, it's like, what is this gonna do? <laughs> like, and what is you, you being upset gonna do? Truly, and when you're, like, in a position in your life, or you're going through just struggle after struggle after struggle, whatever that struggle may be, doing something, having something that makes you feel good, whether it be momentary, like, fleeting, whatever... It, it's a relief mm -hmm. you know like i have definitely when i've been going through difficult times treated myself to like you know what i probably shouldn't spend money on this but i want this book and mm -hmm. it's gonna make me happy and i'm gonna buy the book or i'm gonna buy you know this new eyeshadow palette like mm -hmm. because and you know, it's not about being irresponsible but it's like when you can find something to make you feel good or happy in a time where you're feeling so low or it's just a constant barrage of like difficulty and struggle that's your own personal decision and i don't want to hear it from anybody like well you probably shouldn't have bought that like mm -hmm. you know what it made me happy for that little moment in time before i went back to reality mm -hmm. it made me happy and that has value and that's also important and it's weird that we conflate the two and you know it can't always be all about you know bills and the struggle and like Pinch my pennies and this <laughs> like okay right because otherwise what's the point like we're this is life and it has all these rich different factors and if we got to be like you know i have a candle addiction i'm not gonna lie like if i want to buy the candle i'm gonna buy it and it's not the end all be all sure maybe if i didn't buy that one candle i would have 10 more dollars to put in the tank and then that would like yeah we could do the math but you know if the candle's gonna nobody wants to live like that yeah like sometimes that happiness has um some value too because now i'm in a good mood and now i can accomplish xyz and you don't know and it's just like yeah i love that she brought that up because and i think it's something too that we've been definitely conditioned to do in society i think a lot of adults mm -hmm. have to do some unlearning and acknowledge that they have that because something that's also interesting is like you know, other folks, working class folks, um, I come from like a middle class background. They have this thinking, this ideology. I'm like, y'all, you're not, um, I don't know how to say this, but you're not in the wealthy elite. You're not in the upper class. So you're, yeah, you having these judgmental opinions isn't really doing anything at all. Just, you're just being negative for the sake of being negative. And like, you don't owe anybody an explanation for anything. And like, I remember I saw those tweets going around. I think people were kidding. Some people weren't who, I don't know. But when the second stimulus payment was being um, distributed, people were like, oh, I bet all y'all about to go spend your second stimulus payment on that PS4, huh? Or PS5. Yes, PS5. <laughs> um, and I was like, really and truly, if people start doing that, I wouldn't care. I would not judge you for that because you you know what it's been a hard year and yes. if that ps5 is gonna make you happy then you go do that i don't know your business i don't know your life like and it was even like people were joking about it but then people were already being judgy mm -hmm. of like i can't believe y'all think you're gonna spend your money on that and it hadn't even happened yet mm -hmm. like that's how deeply ingrained it is yeah or they'll be like oh you're gonna go buy the new jordans you're gonna do also since you know we're just being negative and judgmental like it, okay so yeah what if people are just buying um you know, quote unquote, non-essential things with this money, right? That's still going back into the economy, which has suffered and tanked <laughs> from a global pandemic. So it's still helping overall. Like I just, what is this energy doing? What is this energy doing? It's just like the world would be a better place collectively if everybody could mind their own damn business. <laughs> I'm telling like, you, like it would solve a lot of problems. Everyone is so focused on what, you know, Timmy to the left is doing and whatever, like just worry about you stay in your lane yeah i i mean the only thing i can think of if you're actually being helpful and positive and 
you know, constructively, but no, like still mind your business. I just, yeah, I every time I see stuff like that, I just think negative energy out in the air for what? What did we accomplish? What has changed? Nothing. Yeah, and passing your judgment, like, do you think that that lady's gonna go return those steaks? Right. Do you think that, you know, it hasn't made a difference. And let's talk about that too. So this, you know, these somewhat minor purchases or a little treat yourself moments, there's still major like um class imbalances and like wealth imbalances like that's not going to change nothing okay yeah whether she buys porridge or a steak it's not going to make a difference in that moment yeah. even in her life like yeah like <laughs> you just yeah. you look silly for being mad about it <laughs> exactly point blank bottom line so one of the final points i wanted to bring up is She's again talking about like navigating working as a person of color and she has this quote where she says people of color are similarly hyper vigilant when we navigate a white social world. We screen our jokes, our laughter, our emotions and our baggage. We constantly manage complex social interactions so we are not fired, isolated and misunderstood, miscast or murdered. We can come home if we're lucky enough to have a home and turn off that setting. We often do, as I once did, look for versions of ourselves in literature and pop culture. So she has that part. And then um, in the next essay, there's this part where she talks about um, working entry-level jobs. And she says, that is why the first best criteria for most entry-level jobs in media, especially at prestige media companies, is a family wealthy enough to afford you the unpaid internship you will have to take to get your foot in the door. And... I just feel like that's that's a lot to write there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like, yeah, so it's one thing, once you get your foot in the door, you, you're still, again, policing yourself. You can only be a certain way because you know that um, if you kind of step outside the expectations people have of you, that could literally, like, you lose your job. They might tell you that your hair is a little unprofessional. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like, and this is something I've noticed. Um, I feel like this this is not even a conspiracy like i don't know when i'm at work i mean everyone when you're at work you're at work so especially customer service based jobs you're gonna behave a certain way but there's times where like i feel like if i'm laughing like managers ears shoot up and they're like what is going on your work is not getting done why are we laughing why are we happy at, <laughs> at work um, but anyway, that point of the unpaid internships, I think that's really fascinating because there is definitely like, you know, especially I as myself, as I'm trying to like enter my ideal career, there's a certain like privilege, um, I've noticed with my peers in which like, I need a paying job so that right. I can pay my bills right now. And I can't, I don't have the luxury of settling for a job that will help my career, but won't pay my bills and that's that's what we talk about when people say like these are systemic barriers because a lot of entry-level positions want you to have some kind of internship uh, most internships are unpaid statistically people of color cannot afford literally to take an unpaid internship so it's keeping us out of that space because we don't have that luxury mm -hmm. and so i mean i've seen a lot of discourse about this online and thankfully there seems to be a movement of people kind of demanding that unpaid internships end because it's also incredibly unethical mm -hmm. that you want me to work here you know 20 hours a week maybe more for free for experience honey i got my experience <laughs> at school so right let's what's my degree for, <laughs> what's my degree for? <laughs> exactly so you're going to pay me for this work because i feel like too a lot of times um internship positions are very kind of administrative 
or like you're you're, you're wearing a lot of different hats mm-hmm. in internships and it's like you know fully well if you if this was an entry-level role which you're doing work that's of that caliber you would be getting paid right so let's you know let's call it what it is and so yeah i'm glad that there seems to be kind of an awareness about that finally but it reminds me of this post I saw on LinkedIn recently that made me really mad. First of all, I think LinkedIn is super toxic. And yeah. Tressie actually says something in this um, book about like LinkedIn being dumb, <laughs> to put it plainly. Um, but basically, this guy had posted something. You know what? I bet I can find it. Okay, yeah. I actually, I think I'd send it to you, India, because I was so mad. I was like, I need to rant to somebody. <laughs> but this guy posted, he was like, students, here's some real talk. Your internship obsession is absurd. When I was in college, we didn't care. I mostly bummed around at home during the summer, working at my dad's doctor's office part-time. Yeah, I had a couple of internships, but it wasn't a big deal, just something to keep me busy. Most of my friends traveled a bunch or bummed around like me, and here I am now, surrounded by students who are freaking out that they don't have something secured for the spring. Oh no! Guys, relax. You'll get a job, you'll have great careers, and everything will be fine. The internship arms race, put an end to it, and have a pina colada on me. The fact that you cannot recognize that that post is dripping in privilege like as he wrote that how did you not see i'm sorry not all of our fathers work in doctor's offices where they can just give us a position the second we come home to make some money not all of us have the resources to be able to bum around all summer and travel i mean like traveling is something huge on my list that i want to do but that's a luxury right very much so and so like a lot of people commented on that post and were like um this (laughs) is really not it like you're completely erasing the experiences or not erasing but you're not acknowledging that other people have a different experience than you and we cannot afford to do this and so yeah it's like just that kind of mindset and mentality is just dated yes (laughs) And let's not pretend like what you just said. I I be on Indeed, I be on Glassdoor, I be on these websites looking for jobs and they literally are asking, do you have internship experience? Like, I think that's that's gaslighting to be like, why are you tripping over not getting an internship? Like, Uh, you'll get a job without it. No, (laughs) no. you won't. Even with a degree and internship level or internship experience, it's still a struggle. Right. For entry level, they want a lot it's competitive absolutely and yeah it's just like that's not maybe that was the case when you were in school it's not the case now and your privileged case that right there also this person was in college i believe what 25 30 years ago okay the job the job world is very different (laughs) right now the job search is very different right now right and it's a very real thing i mean um yeah i what's coming to mind right now is the movie uh la la land but it is kind of like and just being in la uh this idea of like wearing a lot of hats and trying to chase your passion while also being like i'm an adult like i have things i need to take care of and sometimes the two don't intersect in the way that i want them to like it's my dream it's everyone's dream to do what you love it doesn't feel like i'm at work and that's paying the bills and keeping the lights on and what have you like yeah of course that's the end goal but it's so just naive and harmful to be that willfully ignorant as a grown adult on linkedin talking like your word is law like dude you don't know this is why we could do a whole episode on why i firmly believe linkedin is toxic but this is just an example of the kind of behavior that leads me to believe that but i was very pleased that the brilliant uh tressie mcmillan caught him feels the same way called linkedin out by its name we love to see it yeah yeah i'm not here for linkedin right now and i mean for those (laughs) for people who know me in real life i've really especially like these last few years in social media in general 
I'm definitely failing in terms of being active on all the social media platforms that I have. But LinkedIn in particular, I just like, it's not, um, Soraya said this before we started recording, but like, like, is it actually helping people get jobs? Like, yes, it's a tool and you can use it to connect, but like, yeah, I just want to know, I'm curious to know the statistics on like how many jobs you've successfully gotten having LinkedIn. Yeah. And I know we even said this um, prior to recording too, but to me, like LinkedIn, the purpose of the app is to help you find a job. It's going to thrive on you being in a job search, not Mm -hmm. necessarily in you having a job, which is another reason why I believe it's kind of a toxic environment. But like, let me not go off on a tangent (laughs) on LinkedIn, but yeah, I'm not a fan. Right. And especially like these job tool type of websites that rely on you paying, which is interesting. But um, yeah, like I'm looking for a job. You think I can afford what is it, twenty freaking dollars or something for LinkedIn Premium? Right. Like, so you think I have the disposable income to just do this? Like, they're profiting off of you being in the job hunt. Like, they need you to be looking for a job so that they can stay in business. And Premium doesn't even give you twenty dollars worth of benefits. Okay, you get your in-mail credits. No one ever replies when I in-mail them anyway, <laughs> and it can tell you. Um, I think, what does it tell you? Like how good you look for the job or something like that like they they use insights to see like compared to other applicants how well you qualify that doesn't help me does it tell you like who's also i hate that the uh, nine profile views i don't need to know and people view it in private mode and they're like oh sign up with premium and then when i've done the free trial you people can still view you in a mode where you can't see who it is even if you have premium okay so i'm like y'all are you're trying it's a scam. It, and it's not working today <laughs> yeah and i'm just like why do we need to say that like every time i see those emails i need to go into my settings because i'm just like i don't want to know yet so they're why they're, yeah. are you gonna offer me Yeah, for real. Because if not, then next. (laughs) But um, yes, I know we're already at about 57 minutes here. And I don't want to do a disservice to this book because there's so much to talk about. I feel like we could do an episode on each essay in it. Um, But I highly recommend that you guys read it for yourselves. Because there's like, I mean, we can tell you about it till we're blue in the face. But there's also just (laughs) something that comes from reading it. And I highly recommend it. Um, and I'm actually really glad, really, really glad we chose this as our first nonfiction. Same. I really hope you guys enjoyed our final episode. It has been um, just such an amazing opportunity. I, I love recording these episodes and expanding my mind and thinking about things critically. And um, I want to echo what you just said, Sarai. Like, as our first nonfiction, I really feel like this was it like I I want to go back and reread and revisit this material again at some point in the future um yeah I really enjoyed this book and I would definitely recommend it to anyone not just black women but like literally everyone yes anyone (laughs) and everyone and um we also I we appreciate your patience for season two I know after the undoing our schedule kind of got a little derailed um but we're getting back on track and we're really excited to come back for season three we already have some fun ones planned so stay tuned thank you guys so much for hanging out with us today if you like what you heard and want to stay in the loop be sure to follow our instagram and like our facebook at book solid podcast you can also check out our discord server where you can leave suggestions engage in discussions and take a deeper dive into our episodes we'll have the links to all of our social media accounts in our episode show notes